Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. I'm so excited on today's episode to have Noah Davidson. He's the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Rejuvenate Bio. This conversation is one of the more hardcore ones that we've done. We do some real deal science. This one isn't one of the, hey, what supplement should I take kind of episodes. This one is what causes aging at the cellular level, the genetic level. What do we really know? And how do we build a complex set of treatments that can really work? So we're going to learn a lot. Buckle up. Thanks for uh, being on the program with me. I mean, it's a wide-ranging discussion on basically what your work is and some of your views around longevity. I know we didn't do a prep or anything like that, but we'll edit this particular hour that we spent together and turn it into something nice and compact. But yeah, thanks for being on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Love to talk about this as I am very interested in this field. I don't know enough about Rejuvenate. I've done some reading in advance of us talking here today, and uh, I'm just really curious to maybe start from the beginning. I've had a bunch of different folks on talking about longevity broadly construed, because I think it's an area of a lot of interest. But, you know, I think a lot of the popular discussion that people have been consuming is a lot of kind of self-help and news you can use, kind of what's in your medicine chest kind of stuff. And maybe that's just a place to start. Like your just interest in longevity began somewhere at some point. Tell me your story. How did you come to where you are now, founding Rejuvenate and building a company around it. Yeah, it's a little circuitous depending how far back you go, but I originally went to undergrad and studied applied physics because I wanted to be an astronaut and do space travel, but like Star Trek style space travel, where we have warp drive engines and we can actually travel to different systems. And so I was on the assumption that I would learn a lot and I'd be part of that creating the new engine to take us to these faraway worlds. But then I realized that I, A, we're very far away from having such a thing, and B, I'm not good enough at physics to actually contribute positively in that field. But I still uh, am in love with the exploring and space in general. So I wanted to be around long enough to experience that. And so I thought, well, we only have 100 years if we're lucky and that's not enough time to do all of the different things I want to do and experience. So I refocused my attention from outer space and the very large to the very small and uh, inside. So that's how I got interested in longevity in the sense that I wanted to be around and healthy so that I could experience the future because it always seemed very interesting and exciting. So you were doing like aero astro type stuff or just straight up physics when you were at Caltech or... The major is applied physics. Um, you can kind of choose your own path within applied physics to be more electrical engineering based applied physics or aero applied physics. But I ended up kind of just doing the middle and uh, a little more quantum and thermodynamics and electrical engineering side of the applied physics. Then I started to think that maybe nanotechnology was the way to enhance ourselves and keep us healthier and longer. But again, too much science fiction, not enough science fact. Uh, we're very far away from having little tiny machines that we can have run around our bodies and make us better. So professor at Princeton, Ron Weiss, was 
like, well, we already have machines inside our body. They're called cells. We just need to know how to program them. And so that's how I got into the field of synthetic biology and gene editing and so forth. It's a little bit of a different sort of longevity obsession than some folks that I talk to. One of the patterns that I've noticed is there's folks that somewhere in their teenage years, they're 14 or 16, they realize, oh man, I'm going to die one day. And this has got to be like my life's work. I need to somehow change this. This is the biggest. But for you, it came from like reading sci-fi novels or something. Yeah, it just came on my excitement about the future and what I'll be missing out on if I am not there. But it definitely has evolved because getting my dog Bear really sparked the Rejuvenate Bio itself is how can we take what we know today and turn it into a therapeutic that can help us now? Because he only had theoretically somewhere in the 10 to 12 years when I got him. And so his time was very limited as compared to our time, which is still limited, but not as limited as his was. And so that refocused me and it kind of gave me a different reason for wanting to be able to work in the field of age reversal in that I'd be able to have the, my loved ones around longer and just be able to experience time with them. So I kind of don't really care about the future in the science fiction way anymore. I, it's still interesting, but my main driver is now making the people that we care about healthier and living longer. And I guess your dog, I mean, is your dog still with you? This is an interesting trigger point for your life's work. No, he is not, unfortunately. He had um, the equivalent of ALS for dogs. Uh, it's called degenerative myelopathy. Didn't know about it until he started having, uh, started limping or dragging his back foot, which is kind of the classic. And then it progressed very quickly. But getting him as a puppy really just, you know, I fell in love with him so soon. And I was like, you just don't have enough time. We need to do something about this. I want you around forever. So didn't work out <laughs> tragically, but I guess mammals and non-human animals figure in a big way in your work. Okay. So you started getting interested in, in longevity and you thought, okay, well, let me work on this stuff. I mean, scientifically, what does it mean? You were doing your PhD in the, in a related field or, I mean, how'd you get all the way into it? Synthetic biology is, I think, on a more of a tools level of the biology field in general. So I think it gave me the ability to work in any biological field because I had a lot of genetic engineering background and had all the large screens and the different genetic circuit background to kind of work in any biological field. I just didn't have the background in longevity science or, or uh, any of those specific pathways. So after my PhD, I had the ability to do all this bio research, but no specific background knowledge and longevity, but I was very interested in it and I wanted to learn and take advantage of that. <laughs> My upstairs neighbor was a postdoc in George's lab and he was like, oh, you got to come check it out. You mean George Church? Yeah, in George Church's lab. And uh, he's like, oh, you got to come check it out. Everybody's happy there. Everybody loves, you know, being in George's lab and you can do whatever you want because he's very well funded. And I was like, great. That sounds like a dream because I wasn't really thinking about staying in academia anymore. I was kind of done after my PhD. But I went and visited the lab. George was awesome. And I talked to him. I, I was like, I want to work on aging. He said, great, I'm getting older. So <laughs> it's a good match. Yeah, it was a great experience meeting everybody in the lab. And then I joined his lab. And that's when I started to do my deep dive into finding out the background about longevity and age reversal and uh, came up with my plan after getting bare. Uh, it was like, what's my plan to make this happen now? to give, bring something to the world that can make him healthier and, and be around longer. 
I mean, you showed up in what is, I guess, a world famous playground for biology. Maybe you can characterize a little bit of what it was like. I mean, folks must be working on all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, he's got one of the larger labs in academia, uh, about 100 people. And then in the summer, it kind of bumps up to like 150 people with all the summer students and undergrads that end up working there. So it's a very, very large lab, very diverse set of interests. But the kind of underlying theme is that people want to do innovative work. And usually it's at the intersection of a couple different fields even within biology or outside of biology. So you have people working on nanopore devices that are doing sequencing. You have people working on gene editing of you know pigs for human organs. You have the mammoth project that got spun out into a company. You have longevity research. You have just basic AAV research. This is a very wide breadth of different things. And it allows you, basically nobody, I don't want to claim that nobody's an expert in his lab, but generally what you find is that people aren't don't have the background in the thing that they're working on to start, and they gain that knowledge in his lab and do something at the intersection of that field and some other kind of synthetic biology approach to that field. It's applying that uh, layer of new technology onto a different field. So did you show up with or sort of apply to be part of it with a research agenda in mind, or is the idea more you're a clever generalist who will find your way around and maybe attach to something someone else is working on or eventually come up with your own project? What's the, you know, sort of development of your ideas in in that environment? I think you can do either. I came with a plan in mind, or at least a subject in mind that I wanted to work on. I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to approach it, but he was okay. He's okay with that. You don't have to have a plan when you show up. There are other people that kind of show up with not much of a plan and do attach to other postdocs and grad students in the lab just to kind of get their feet wet and then develop their own ideas and projects. So it's either or. Generally, George is just good at attracting really high quality talent with people who are very open and collaborative because I think he's fostered this amazing environment of openness, collaborativeness, and innovation that you don't necessarily find in other large labs, potentially. Like, it's not very cutthroat there. Everybody's trying to help everybody else. Nobody's trying to step on people's toes. I think he's done a very good job at establishing such an amazing environment to do innovative research. Right. I mean, I guess the the contrast would be to some much more top-down kind of agenda-driven operations that are maybe a little more militaristic in the subdivision of tasks and research programs and how they all come back together and sort of feed some some master plan and it sounds like a, a kind of paradise that you got invited to go play around in and but perhaps paralyzing right i mean you want to work on aging and longevity it's and at the time that you were getting started it may not have even been well articulated by others how to break it down and think about what the most promising dimensions would be how did you get started even breaking it down it's a good question i read a lot i think i spent three months just reading papers every day all day and just conceiving ideas and talking about it to people and it seemed to me that in general the problem was very large very hard and people had their narrow lanes that they were working in there's like the eight hallmarks of aging or whatever And each one of those is very narrow, but doesn't take into a big holistic view of what aging actually is. So I immediately kind of took a step back and was like, I don't want to work in any one particular hallmark of aging. What's the root cause? Like, where are we going to actually solve this problem? So that's how I took a step back and be like, where can I work on a level that 
touches all the hallmarks of aging and much more with a translation mindset as well. I wasn't just trying to do cool research for publication. I had a very specific goal in mind of translating this into the real world as soon as possible. So those two kind of directions or restrictions, if you will, led me to working on what we currently are working on. Well, characterize the space a little bit. So the hallmarks, right? Um, you know, like all the different systems that can get broken, I suppose, is maybe one way to oversimplify it, right? Like some cells get old through their multiple generations of copying themselves. Your DNA starts having errors in it. There's epigenetic stuff that starts having noise in there. Cells are not talking to each other. I mean, maybe you can go around the wheel for me. Because for different people, some are the most important, right? I mean, there's some folks who think, well, this is the most important, that's the most important. And to even call it the hallmark, it's kind of a, I don't know, I mean, it's just sort of a consensus overlap area of these things seem to go along with aging, right? I mean, it's not a theory of aging, I don't think. I I think you end up in a whack-a-mole situation, kind of the way we treat diseases now. Because if you have heart failure, you get treated for heart failure. If you have obesity, you get treated for obesity. But usually there's a lot of comorbidities. And so just being able to treat any one disease is not really going to make you globally more healthy. And so that's why I wasn't wanting to do one particular aspect because then some other aspect of aging, if it wasn't autophagy or DNA mutations, it would be inflammation and stress and other damage that would eventually become the problem. So instead of going after one individual pathway, we take a step back and, all right, how do we figure out what the root cause is of aging? And I guess for me, the place that we can intervene is at the epigenetic level, because as you go from an infant to an adult, you have a very pre-programmed path of your genetic expression of different gene expression profiles, protein expression. And once you reach adult, the program is over. The goal now is to maintain that current state. So in your like 23 to 25 range is when you reach the final state of adult human. And now all your gene genetic programs and networks are trying to just maintain exactly what they are. And obviously we all age, so they're not perfect at it. And gene expression changes over the course of your lifetime for the worse, it seems, because we're not able to deal with stress and damage as good as we would have been when we were younger. We can't pull an all-nighter and still be ready to go the next day and hang out with people. You can't, you know, get injured on the soccer field. And then like a week later, you're like, oh, all better. As you age, all these problems start to accumulate because the protein expression profiles have changed and they're out of balance. And so if we wanted to globally change all these expression profiles in every single cell or a sufficient quantity of cells, we'd have to interface on that level and take on that challenge of re-regulating protein expression. Rejuvenate, we're focusing on our first therapy, which is more of a proof of concept that we can re-regulate two proteins that change over time. FGF21 decreases as you get older and TGF-beta1 increases as you get older. So we flip it. So we're increasing FGF21 and decreasing TGF-beta1 to hopefully re-regulate those two proteins. They're secreted so they can go everywhere in your body so we don't have to get every single cell. And so that's why it's a nice attractive first attempt at age reversal and disease reversal. But they don't hit every single gene network and every single genetic program that you have. It's definitely a good start, but to really reverse aging and reverse disease states, we need to re-regulate the entire cell's program to an earlier state. And 
our bodies actually can do this. When we have kids, they take our genetic material, they repackage it, they reset the clock, and then you have a whole new human being. So the ability to do this is demonstrated in nature itself. We just have to capture that, retool it so that we can actually apply it to an adult human and not turn them into a baby again, but just make them slightly younger. Yeah, I guess that's a compelling analogy. I mean, but there's also uh, in this last decade, Yamanaka factors, getting cells to return to something closer to or all the way to a pluripotent stem cell state. And I suppose that's a similar demonstration, is it, of things getting younger? No, exactly. Right now, it definitely, the Yamanaka factors, like you said, turn cells into stem cells. And if you kind of look at it from an aging perspective, stem cells are the youngest you can be because you start out as a stem cell. The goal in the field of epigenetic reprogramming or partial reprogramming using the Amanaka factors is to decouple the cell identity aspect and the age of the cell. Because you don't want your liver cells becoming stem cells or your neurons becoming stem cells. You want them to become younger versions of themselves. So we can use the tools of the Yamanaka factors. And that's what our preprint was in January is doing this partial reprogramming where you turn them on temporarily to get the effects on the aging axis to make the cells younger, but you don't de-differentiate them into stem cells. So you allow them to remain liver cells, but younger liver cells. That's what the field is going toward right now. I don't think the Yamanaka factors are the exact right tool, but it is the best tool we have available at the moment. There are probably better genes that can help deconvolve those two axes. So you can only play on the age reversal axis to make the cells healthier, more resilient, instead of having to do both. So, Can you characterize the factors? Everyone's always like, oh, the factors. I mean, what are we talking about? We're adding a cocktail of stuff that indiscriminately gets a cell to freak out and shed its structure? I mean, what are we uncorking when we do this? The term generally used is master cell fate regulator. And so if you have this protein, it binds to a lot of different places on your DNA and then tells other proteins to turn on or turn off. And the Yamanak factors are four specific regulators. They're OCT4, SOX2, KLA4, and CMYK. And using those four, you can turn a cell from an adult cell into a stem cell because they turn off and turn on the right genes that would be appropriate for a stem cell. And that's generally what happens when you go from a single cell embryo to a baby to an adult is that your cells are going from the stem cell form into a liver cell or a neuron, which has its own program. We're trying to go in reverse, but only on the age aspect and not on the identity aspect. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In The Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we wanna back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person as an academic, as a student. And then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. 
And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Inyaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. You know, one way to interpret, at least when the discoveries first happened, is that it's some kind of time machine and you're moving linearly through time all the way back and you're kind of watching the movie backwards where it starts undifferentiating and, and, you know, maybe that's the fingers crossed version of like, don't add too much, just add a little. But there's a whole different way to think about it, which is you're just leaping directly to a target, right? You're telling, hey, cell, you're like this, you're going to become like this. You're not moving backwards by a little bit or a medium bit or too much. You're literally just choosing a certain state to be in. And you could never get it right. You'd always blow up your liver and turn it into all stem cells if you were to apply those factors. Biology is generally more analog than digital. So as you apply the factors, it slowly does turn the expression profile on and off in different places. And if you don't do it for too long, then you don't actually jump all the way back to that cell type. Which is the happiest result. I mean, that's like what you kind of wish to be true. And you just got to figure out how to titrate the exposure period to get to the state you want to be in, right? And your liver doesn't dissolve. It's just a younger liver. And this is essentially the approach that you're pursuing. I think our first level goal, we showed that it was possible to use the Amanaka factors to make mice globally healthier and live longer. But the next set of goals is to actually translate this into something that's workable for humans. There's a lot of different hurdles associated with that. The way we temporarily turn the genes on won't work in humans. It's a bacterial system that we would reject as foreign and have an immune response to. So we've created a better inducible system that can control the the signal. And exactly which genes you use is also, I think, a, a big research topic because, like I said, the Yamanaka factors are a great place to start, but they're probably not the ideal ones. Nobody's actually screened for age reversal genes. They were screening for stem cellness. This needs to be applied to the field as well. It, we can find safer and more accurate age reversal genes and programs. What we know then in your landscape here is... Um... You can send some proteins to the DNA. You can turn some stuff on and off. Yamanaka found a few that were incredibly powerful, and they do this stem cell inducement, which is great. You've found also that you can moderate its effect, but there might be other ones out there. People haven't tried every single possible protein in the known you know, solution space. And, and your thought is sitting out there, there might be a, a few candidates that are safe that you ought to try, and they might give you some desirable results as well. So we have programs trying to identify better proteins. Uh, we also have the program trying to have a better control system. And uh, we also are working on better delivery with better AAV capsids as well. So top to bottom, trying to solve the problem of getting into all the cells we want and having a nice safe control system that will allow us to reverse the damage or age of the cell. This should also reverse whatever disease state we'd be going after because as a therapeutic, there's no way to go into humans for an age reversal therapy at the moment. And people generally, I would say, care more about health span and whether or not their disease is impacting their life. And so our first goal is to actually eliminate the diseases of aging by reversing your cells to a state where they did not have that disease. I want to discriminate for a second between the territory we're in and um, stem cell therapies. So it's sort of a, I don't know, it feels very unspecific, but 
there's all these folks that are talking about or actually taking or clinics that are offering just, I guess, doses of either your own or third-party stem cells just injected into the body because they'll float around and, and do good things? Is that clearly a different set of ideas, perhaps, but maybe you can characterize it a bit, like what and why and how promising is this approach? It's not completely different. It depends how you look at it. The heterochronic parabiosis studies where they hook an old mouse blood system up to a young mouse's blood system, you see the old mouse get younger and the young mouse get slightly older. And what you're seeing here is a lot of signaling between the cells. Now let's take a step back and say, okay, what if we transplanted an old person's heart into a young person's body? What would happen to the heart? Well, it's getting all these signals from everything around it saying, be young. And so that heart would actually become younger. And because the cells are all responding to the environment, all that intercellular communication. If you did the reverse, if you took a young heart and put it in an old person's body, it would get older because the large amount of pressure from an entire person's oldness pressing on this young heart would make the young heart cells be older. It would turn those programs to a later stage. If we take that to a final conclusion and you know did, did like a head transplant or a brain transplant, you would potentially be able to de-age yourself uh, significantly by replacing all the old body with a young body. And now if we go back to the stem cell question, what are the stem cells doing? Well, you're putting in a bunch of young cells into the body, and you're hoping that those few cells have an outsized effect on the enormous amount of old cells they're surrounded by. And they're probably not having a large effect. You're probably getting much more of an influence from the old systemic milieu that they're put in on the young cells and telling them to turn into old cells rather than the reverse. If you could completely change out the blood system or all the stem cells and make all of those things younger, maybe you'd start to have enough quorum that you could actually make your body or other systems younger. A nice and, and fairly simplified way of describing it, I guess. But I suppose that's the hope. I mean, it's like the ancient myth of the young blood. You get some young stuff, whether it's stem cells or, you know, maybe just other biological material. And you're sort of saying you've seen this effect in, in other contexts, and maybe there's some plausibility along those lines, but unlikely to be some kind of magic. It sort of sounds like magic, right? Like the stem cells know where to go, and they go find the problem, and they sort of reconstitute that particular system. There's some kind of homing going on. But you, you weren't quite that generous in, in describing it. You're just like, yeah, there's, there's just some blending going on. If they worked, as you say, like they would home in and find something, we'd have a therapy out there that has stem cells that do just that. The fact that we don't have a stem cell therapy approved in the U.S. makes me believe that they're not actually doing what those places are claiming. Because people have been messing around with them for quite some time. I mean, at least 20 years, I guess, getting them from umbilical cords and stuff. There's some interesting stuff that people research and show with the stem cells, but it just doesn't seem like it has the effect that people think it might have or could have. And I think the problem is, is that it's just being overwhelmed by the general system it's put in. If you could isolate them and force them to stay young, then maybe they would start to have an effect on the cells nearby, and then those cells would have an effect on the cells nearby them. You know, there may be something that could happen, but I think just putting random stem cells into your body is not going to have the generalized outsized effect that people are hoping for. Blood transfusion, like the, the whole young blood thing, I think just the quantity of young blood, you need, like the old mouse and the young mouse, their circulatory systems are hooked up for days and days. And they're exchanging 
blood for days. It's not just like, oh, I had, you know, one blood transfusion today and, you know, in another month I'll do another one. It's the quantity of cells and factors being changed is just another several magnitudes higher. I don't think the blood direction also has that much promise until you, if you take into account the the sheer volume and numbers involved with the mouse studies. That's just not very translatable or practical for humans. It might work, just not practical. And I hope it's not overly dangerous, given how much I'm hearing people trying it out. But I suppose I agree there isn't such clear evidence of really big benefits for folks. But I suppose that motivates well uh, the approach that you guys have taken, right? So to return to that, I mean, I guess your thought is, all right, instead of throwing some handfuls of uh, young material into the body, let's go deploy an agent that reprograms and gets lots and lots of cells to start changing their own age, essentially, right? Rejuvenating them. You know, the the breadth and scope of stuff you need to do to get this going, targeting the right systems, controlling the pace. I mean, it's a lot. And I I wonder if we can start disaggregating a little bit the approach. I mean, you're going to need to target the right places, control the pace, figure out what the target level is. And that's the development of a mechanism, more or less, for delivering your treatment or something. But you'll have to start with a particular disease of aging is maybe the thing that for like the popular universe would be the most puzzling. I guess just for clinical trials, for IRB, for FDA, you need a disease target. It can't just be, hey, we're working on aging. So you definitely have to go after a specific disease when trying to get a therapy approved. It helps though, because there's quantifiable metrics to show that like, look, you're doing something positive for this disease. And so for our first therapy, we're going into ARVC, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. What is it? Some kind of heart disease, heart attack, what's an irregular heartbeat, something like that? Yeah, exactly. So if you've heard about these young people who are, you know, in high school and like having a heart attack on the basketball court, this is that disease where they have a random arrhythmic event, their heart stops pumping, and then they just have a heart attack and, and die. So it's a rare disease, is a big problem for the patient population. And high unmet need, like there is no real good treatment out there. They usually just have to decrease the amount of exercise they're doing and be more or less mostly sedentary and and be on a lot of different medications to prevent heart failure and arrhythmias going forward. But there's no real solution for this. But if we take a step back and look at just diseases in general, almost all diseases get worse as you age. From that perspective, most diseases are diseases of aging. There are obviously exceptions to that, which are like pediatric cancers and other genetic diseases that don't necessarily play in. But your body, even like something like ALS, your body does not have clinical symptoms of ALS when you're 20 per se. By the time you're 35, you're very well into the advanced stage of this disease. The difference between when you're in development, a child, or early adulthood is that your body is able to handle the stress and the problems associated with those diseases. And as you get older, your body can no longer combat or deal with those stresses. So like Alzheimer's is a disease of old people, but only old people get it because by the time you're that age, your neurons programs are no longer optimal and they can't get rid of protein and things start to accumulate. And I don't want to get into the exactly what's causing Alzheimer's. That's a huge debate in itself. But in general, your body's not able to deal with the stresses that they've, and they've accumulated to a point where it becomes a problem. But this is a particular point of view. I don't mean to contest it, but I haven't heard someone lay out their theory of the diseases of aging as a kind of battle, a continuous battle from youth against these things where your defenses, maybe your immune system or, you know, your cellular self-repair starts just losing its purchase in that battle. 
So it's there all along in the case of ALS, or it's there all along in the case of Alzheimer's. You're, I mean, and for this wide variety of different disorders that seem to develop over age, that's your view? Yeah. I mean, can- cancer is another one, right? Like you may have the mutations your whole life, or you're, you may be accumulating mutations your whole life, but your immune system is getting rid of those cells for a long period of time. It's not that you don't have cancer cells, it's that your body knows how to get rid of them when you're younger. Apoptosis or just the immune system clearing them or recognizing that there's something wrong with them. But as you get older, those systems don't work as well anymore. They're not recognizing the cell. You get the, a lot more senescent cells. They may not apoptose because the programs aren't quite the right amount of protein to make that actually happen. And so you just accumulate all these inefficiencies and differentiated protein expression profiles that will eventually lead to some type of failure in some type of tissue and you will have a disease. So we were talking about ARV, C. Let's come back to it. High school basketball player has this event. Afterwards, people are like, whoa, you're going to have to really watch out. But in your view, it's a disease that's treatable by making those heart cells younger? A lot of the diseases of aging have common underlying pathology. The first therapy that we're using with FGF21 and anti-TGF beta-1 goes after some of those common underlying mechanisms. So increasing muscle cell health using FGF21, which increases the number of mitochondria, increases vascularization to the heart, and anti-TGF beta-1 decreases fibrotic tissue development, so less scar tissue, less non-functional heart cells, and also just decreases general inflammation and the inflammatory environment. And so the combination of those two genes will be able to treat the pathology of a number of different diseases. ARVC is a great candidate because they have not many options right now, and they need something that will be around for a long time to help solve this problem. And uh, like our first therapy can definitely play in ARVC. It also should be able to be used in a number of other indications because liver fibrosis or liver disease like fat NASH has a lot of the same characteristics, fibrosis and decreased cell health and inflammatory environment. FGF21 is also really good at uh, metabolic pathways. It, It helps keep you lean body mass and increased insulin sensitivity. So you'll lose weight and you'll have proper blood glucose. You'll also have less comorbidities because now you're not overweight. And so it it feeds on itself. But generally, that's why I really like taking the genes that we know can make mice live longer and healthier and applying them to specific age-related diseases because it should be holistically better and play in a number of common pathways in a lot of different diseases. Okay, so we're focusing on, at the moment, one of your first therapies, I guess, that that has a bunch of different applications. But where it came from wasn't by sitting and thinking about fatty liver disease or ARVC, the heart disorder. It came from looking at mice? Yeah, so when I did my months and months of reading, then I started to accumulate all these different proteins that we know are good at making mice live longer. And most of those experiments are done using transgenic mice where you actually breed a mutation or a gene into that mouse and then they live with that mutation or extra gene or something their entire life. And what you come out of that is that you have these proteins that you can modulate for general health benefits that show basically no safety issues because they've been on the entire lifespan of the mouse. And the side effect is that they lived longer and healthier and had less 
diseases and comorbidities along the way. Realizing that we had these wealth of kind of targets, if you will, for therapeutic application that we know are really, really safe and play in very common underlying pathologies like fibrosis and metabolic health, the idea was to take these genes and turn them into a therapy because Like I said, the mice were bred with these genes, but that's not going to work for you or me or for Bear at the time. I needed to take these genes and turn them into a therapeutic that we could actually translate. Yeah, because for us, it's too late. We're already born. And it would be a very difficult job to try to get every one of our cells to be edited to have that gene. Who knows? Maybe someday that's the sort of thing that's possible. So I guess the approach that you've centered on then is either deploy that protein, because that'd be some kind of vitamin or supplement or something, right? Or deploy some cells that spit out that protein? Right. And I think, um, you know, the whole stem cell engineering and implantation, I think there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of problems to solve there. Whereas gene therapy, I got lucky. I came around in a time that gene therapy was on its way up and a lot of the problems have already been solved. So creating a a virus that had the genes that we want to deliver and then being able to deliver them in a high enough quantity to have a therapeutic effect, that problem had been solved. I was able to piggyback on the work of others. The reason I chose these two proteins, though, is because not all the issues are solved. So we're really good at getting things into the liver because your liver clears everything in your blood. So when you do an injection, everything has to go through the liver. And to take advantage of that fact, we chose two proteins that are secreted from cells and then go everywhere. So we don't have to get into every single cell because these two proteins go everywhere and have their effect globally, even though they're only produced in the liver. The next generation therapy, the partial reprogramming that we talked about, that will have to go into the cell that you're targeting. And so there's some extra hurdles that we're going to have to get over to make that therapeutic a reality. But the first one is a, look, we can take the genes that make people or make mice live longer and healthier, turn them into therapeutics and apply them to many different disease. So that's what their first therapeutic is doing. The second one is actually going to go into every single cell as many as possible and reverse the age of those cells for another specific disease and start to accumulate many different tissues and organs. It's like, okay, we're going to do it for muscle cells. We're going to get rid of sarcopenia. We're going to do it for neurons. We're going to get rid of Alzheimer's and so forth. And you can kind of stack and eventually get the whole body. Yeah, so this first one, I guess I see how it seems straightforward. You know, you've got sort of insulin throughout the system, but it all comes, I suppose, from your pancreas, or you've got um, white blood cells are all floating around, and they all come from bone marrow or something like that. And you could recruit some bits of, of the liver to start spitting out this protein we were talking about that has a generally salubrious kind of effect for any cell that it bumps into. So you get it floating all around, and it's like, hey, cell, get a little younger avoid fibrosis and avoid some of these other quite wide-ranging characteristics of being a little bit older or a little bit dysfunctional. And getting the liver to do it is a virus payload that you deliver. This is how you're making it happen. And you're doing it now for mice, for dogs? Who's got it? Exactly. It's a virus payload. The virus we use is called uh, AAV, adeno-associated virus. It's a very small virus that is found in a lot of people. It's non-pathogenic, and that's why we like to use it, because It doesn't have any harm to humans generally. We do inject quite a bit more of it than is naturally found, but that's to get enough cells that we want to express these proteins. Could you just flood the system with proteins, though? Like, do you really need to reprogram the liver? 
you could do a protein therapeutic approach. The problem for these particular ones is that FGF21 half-life is very short. And so you're looking about two hours. Oh, so you'd be injecting yourself four times a day. Yeah, way more. Oh, even more. And so um, you could theoretically dose yourself very high and only do it like three times a day, but maybe you don't want the levels to be that high. And so gene therapy seems to be the right modality for FGF21 because you get continuous expression of those proteins from the liver. So being able to recruit those liver cells to do it is pretty easy. They already are naturally good at secreting proteins. That's part of their job is to secrete a ton of proteins. So just having them secrete one or two more is no big deal. And so how far along are you in in the development, right? I mean, what we were just coming up to is, is it in mice? Is it in dogs? Is it in vitro with human cells? Or is there some tissue you've isolated? Are you working with organoids? Like how far along are we before we're in regular people and, and all that? We're hoping to be in a clinical trial for people with ARVC by the end of next year. Right now we have, we've done a ton of mouse experiments, so I can't even count the number of mouse experiments that we've done. One of the bigger dog uh, things that we've done, we are using people's pets at Tufts, uh, through Tufts University collaboration, through their vet school, where they have this disease called mitral valve disease, a different disease of the heart. And since they have a similar underlying pathology where they get fibrosis, their heart size changes, and they have remodeling and inflammation, our therapy can be applied there successfully as well. And we have so far enrolled about 17 dogs through this pilot study at Tufts uh, that have mitral valve disease. And we're seeing some pretty promising results in that disease as well. So we now have safety and efficacy and durability data for a one-time injection into these dogs lasting for almost three years now. That's a virus payload, the one-time injection, right? Yeah, exactly. So the we do a one-time injection of the virus. It delivers its genetic payload to the liver cells, and then it stays in those cells semi-permanently for a number of years. The exact length of time is a little unknown at the moment, but uh, people have reported greater than 12 years from a single injection. It is uh, a breathtakingly ambitious sequence of steps that you got to pull off. And uh, you're just getting started. So you start with this one, and then I guess your next virus is meant to go get all the cells all over the place because it won't be enough to just have the liver churning out some proteins. We don't want to get all the cells. We'll probably be much more disease-specific. So whichever disease we end up going after, if it is like Alzheimer's, we'd be going after neurons. And if it is muscle cells, we'd be, or sarcopenia, we'd be going after muscle cells. You know, getting in the body and working on these very serious disorders, I mean, of course, it's an important mission. There are some folks who have been fiddling around maybe the edges a bit more, trying to deliver, uh, for example, just straight up longevity for dogs, or maybe things that are more around like beauty and aging, things like skin, or I don't know, turn your gray hair black again, or, or something like that. And I wonder if you've nibbled around the edges on some of these sorts of themes. I like to actually go after the root cause of the problem. and. What we're doing is eventually, we are going after the root cause of the problem, but we're taking a logical approach of how to incrementally get all the pieces of the puzzle together to get to where we want to go. Making your hair dark again or getting rid of some wrinkles here or there isn't necessarily solving the problem of age reversal and cell health and cell youth, but doing it the way we're doing it, we're actually solving the underlying aging problem and slowly applying it to more and more tissues and structures so that we get a larger and larger effect. 
it will be superfluous to have the hair turning black or the, the wrinkles being gone when we actually successfully deploy age reversal therapies because they will consequently make the wrinkles go away and make the hair black because you will be younger. I don't think nibbling around the periphery or trying to get these kind of exciting things that people right now care about when if we can actually eliminate real diseases of aging, we'll be getting to the heart and root cause of the systemic problem. I mean, it certainly fits your your level of ambition. If you're going to try to do Star Trek style space travel, we're going to need you to figure this foundational set of matters out. Well, even traveling in space is a big problem because nobody talks about it, but the amount of radiation that somebody would get going from here to Mars makes going to Mars a very unattractive possibility. Going to the moon and back, you're still at least somewhat protected by Earth, but outside of that, you get way more radiation. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the it'll show in your in your wrinkles once you've got that amount of and solar potential cancer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so impressive the stuff that you're working on and I think it is, I mean, you're right, it, it is so foundational, right? It's got this sort of governing thought about what makes it all tick. I am curious though for your opinion on things that you're not working on. You know, just some of the other approaches that folks have, what, what are some of the wilder things that you think are interesting that if you weren't working at the center the way you are, you might find were curious or appealing, whether in longevity land or what you might call adjacent areas, things around um, preservation or repair or replacement, uh, things like cryonics or um, even folks that are kind of trending into the digital overlap realm. I'm curious what has struck your sci-fi fancy as you've been plugging away at your gene editing. Yeah, I think the field in general suffers from a lot of opportunistic people trying to take advantage of the promise of longevity. And so like a lot of the supplements that promise X, Y, or Z aren't really giving you what they're promising. And so there's a lot of snake oil. And so differentiating between real science and, and the snake oil salesman is generally difficult for this field because the idea of it, of being able to do what everybody would like to do, is very hard. It's not an easy solution. There's not going to be one thing to do. The things that we can do today go along the same underlying principles that I'm working on, but don't have as large of an effect. For instance, if you exercise, you're changing your gene expression profiles for the better uh, to when they are better oriented and better to deal with stress. And some of that cold shock therapy does something similar. It's trying to get gene expression profiles to be better like when you were younger. And so there is a lot of evidence that when you do some of these stresses in the right amount, you actually end up changing your gene profiles to be better. Caloric restriction. Exactly. So these are all going along that line of how do we get the genes back into the right alignment and gene expression profiles? They're not powerful enough to actually reverse it, but they will get it as good as it can be at that moment. Exercise, eating right, eating less, these are all positive things that I try to do all the time and because I want to be healthy long enough that I can be here so that I can hopefully inject myself one day. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's wonderful and a really optimistic outlook. I mean, it's true. I mean, probably everybody in the field would agree that eat less, eat right, sleep more, exercise more, and maybe be happy, like be social, some kind of mindfulness, sociality sort of thing. Definitely. You got to get your daily hug, right? But your medicine cabinet's uh, empty in that case. You Not even a multivitamin. You're not taking any kind of metabolic health, kind of fish oil, fatty, this or that. There's certainly no hormones in there. You're not 
doing peptide injections. No, none of that. I don't think there's enough scientific evidence. If there was, it'd be an FDA-approved therapy for that. Because it's not FDA-approved means that they were not able to get above the high bar for scientific evidence to do that. There is another way of reasoning around that. I mean, if it worked, the FDA would have approved it. That sort of logical chain will not get you everything that works. I mean, so, you know, metformin's application for, I guess, diabetics, cool. But what about near diabetics, pre-diabetics, non-diabetics? Is there some beneficial effect? Is there any economic incentive for folks to just run and drive those trials through? Is it ever going to happen? is a question I've heard asked by a lot of people in the field, right? Metformin is kind of an easy one to... Definitely, if the monetary incentive is what drives a lot of these things through the FDA, because once you get FDA approval, you basically have a monopoly for a little while on that therapeutic for that disease or indication. And metformin obviously is off patent, and there is a lot less economic value to applying it to new things. And any aging trial, any aging like phase three trial would be way too long to be practical. So I don't think going after aging is actually the correct way to look at it. I think you should be going after different specific diseases that have near-term quantifiable metrics. That's why we're doing heart disease in dogs and heart disease in humans and eventually other number of other diseases because at the end of the day, that's what people care about, you know, functional health. But yeah, I agree. You're not necessarily going to have the evidence. But the other thing is like, it may work, it may not work, but there's no, if people haven't done the work to show that I'm too risk averse to just go try it myself because there's no way for me to measure if it's actually working. You have a way higher potential of something harming you than helping you with a lot of drugs and and these things. And that's why the FDA is in place to show you the difference between the helpfulness of it versus the harm it can do. There's always side effects to a lot of these small molecules without a real trial to show that it's beneficial and not harmful, I'd be very weary of trying anything. Well, I will tell you this. I am uh, thrilled to have such a careful and sober-minded fellow working on this most central of problems that affects every one of us day by day by day. So I'm thrilled to have had you talk with us. Thank you. It's been such an interesting conversation. And it's also clear to me, I'm going to have to do some research on snake oil oil for for our next episode. The pros and the cons. But thanks again, Noah. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.